Bible with you, you can go ahead and open up to Exodus chapter 12, and we are on our <clears throat> second week dealing with the Mosaic Covenant, and uh, we are going to try to get to the end of the book of Exodus today, and we're not going to be going book by book through the whole Bible, but I just want to give you a sense of where we're going. So we're, we're, our plan is to do the back half of Exodus today very much in overview fashion, and to, to highlight the Mosaic Covenant, major aspects of the covenant. And then our goal next Sunday is to do a single week on the entire book of Leviticus. Now, I know that's, that's impossible to do, but we're, we're, again, in very much an overview fashion, we want to touch on a number of things because you can't understand the Mosaic Covenant without understanding Leviticus, the priesthood, the temple, sacrifice, cleanliness, uncleanliness, purity laws, ritual clean, uh, impurity, all that stuff, some of it very foreign, some of it still makes a lot of sense to us, but we want to spend a little time overviewing Leviticus to better understand the Mosaic Covenant, and then we'll move on from there. We will not do every Old Testament book at a time, one, one after another, but we will, we will do these early ones because they're so foundational to understanding this covenant with Moses. Let's pray. I'll pray for us, and then we will jump in. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank You for another day to gather with Your people, and I pray that even now as we think through Your covenants and Your Word, that we would come away with a more biblical, uh, textual understanding of what Your Word teaches, especially as regards the nation of Israel and the covenant with Moses on Mount Sinai. And I pray that ultimately we would see these things pointing to Christ and to the fulfillment that is ours in Christ. And God, I pray that You would bring, bring clarity and, and help us to understand these things uh, for Your glory and for our good. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Greg, can you say, you wanted to say a quick word here about our, so we don't forget this uh, taxonomy here of the yes. systems of thought. Can you say a word here about where we're at in, in this whole uh, yes. thing here? Yes, um, this is important to, um, to remember. Make sure I don't mess my uh, thing up here. Um, you know, we're arguing for what is called progressive covenantalism, and that's simply that um, God's plan for His kingdom progresses throughout the Bible along um, along the different covenants that he makes, clear covenants that he makes with his people at various times. Um, and so it's definitely more uh, in line with the covenant theology, stuff like that, but with some, some nuances that as further we go, the more we're going get, to get into that. Um, but it's, it's not just you know, looking at the covenants, because if, if we look at like just the content of a lot of this, in terms of practical application, in terms of trying to understand it, just you know where it is in its own context. Like you will have a lot of agreement um, amongst the the spectrum up here. What where the disagreement comes in comes is when we what we're arguing is the way the covenants unfold relate to one another. Um, that is the structure of the Bible. That's what's pushing the story of the Bible forward. Is the covenants okay? Um, like a dispensationalist is going to see that differently. They're going to say covenants are important. They're not going to deny that, uh, obviously. Um, there's going, you know, like I said, there's going to be a lot of agreement uh, on a lot of the content, but they, a dispensationalist is not going to see the covenant as central to the structuring of the Bible, to the story of the Bible, um, to, to God's kingdom. It's going to be more, uh, if you're an older, older dispensationalist, you're going to have the seven dispensations. Each one, God has a different way that he relates to man. Uh, man fails that, so he institutes a new one all the way up through the church age into the kingdom age. Uh, so there were seven originally. If you have progressive dispensationalism, there's four dispensations. But it, it structures the Bible differently, okay? And we're arguing that, yes, the covenants are important, and they're so important, in fact, that they actually form the backbone, the skeletal structure of the Bible, and it's, it's along the covenants that the story 
progresses God's kingdom story. And in light of that, I want to mention something that we mentioned early on, and I'm, I'm just going to read it real quick. Uh, I'm not going to linger here. But remember, I, I, we gave a, a five-point summary of the Bible and kind of a, a hundred thousand from sp- 100,000 foot from space view, uh, you know, what, what are we looking at? What is the big box top that we're, we're using to piece the puzzle together? And so here it is again, simply that the Bible is God's story, point number one. Point number two, God's story is about God's kingdom. Point number three, God's kingdom is about God and his people. Point four, God's kingdom is carried, shaped, and implemented by God's covenants progressively throughout history. And five, God's story, kingdom, and covenants are fulfilled in the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and return of God's Son, Jesus Christ. Okay, that's like a, the, the highest overview we can give um, of this. That's the flow of the Bible. It's about God's kingdom, which is about God and His people, but that kingdom can only make sense in terms of its connection to the covenant that's in place. And so kingdom comes through covenant, um, and it's, it's progressively revealed along each covenant. You, you're always saying what's going on here, but how does it build on what came before? How is it anticipating what's coming after? And so that's why we call it progressive covenantalism. Um, and again, just keep that in, in the background. God's kingdom is, is moving. We're trying to relate to that every time uh, through God's covenants. Um, and that's the shape, structure, and story of the Bible. That's good. And back to the, uh, the chart here of the different covenants. Uh, as we get to the new covenant is when we're going to spend more weeks on that covenant. And uh, the back half of the series is going to be lengthy as well, because there's a lot of different topics to work through. But I think when we get to the new covenant section is where Mm -hmm. the differences are going to start to come out much more clearly. So right now, there's going to be general agreement on a lot of what we're saying across the different views, not not identical agreement, but general agreement. Mm -hmm. When we get to the new covenant part, how do you bring all the threads together in Christ? That's where denominational differences come in. That's where all kinds of differences amongst Christians are going to come in. So th- th- I think it's going to get even more uh, in, in, in the sense of uh, controversial, perhaps, when we get mm-hmm. to the New Covenant section. How, how do all these threads come together in Christ will be, yeah. will be a big issue of discussion. So just for the sake of time, we're going to jump ahead here. Exodus chapter 12. Uh, I know we were here a little last Sunday. I want to repeat something that we didn't clarify maybe as much as I would like. So this is, again, the Passover. Exodus 12, starting in verse 12. The Lord says this. <clears throat> For I will strike the firstborn in the land of Egypt, and you can skip to verse 13, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, let, let me quote here a long quote here from Graham Goldsworthy again. So here, here's what he says. It's on the screen as well. He says, none of the earlier plagues of the 10 plagues, right? None of the earlier plagues had actually touched who? Israel. Right? Remember, they were in Goshen, and the plagues did not touch them in Goshen, but it touched the Egyptians, very, very much so. But Israel's involvement in the tenth plague is an important part of God's revelation of the kingdom. What does that mean? Unless they believe God and follow His directions to apply the blood to the doorpost, unless they believe God about the Passover and, and obey, apply the blood to, the, to their doorpost and follow these directions, all the firstborn of not just Egypt, but Israel will die. So you see now God's judgment is threatening not just Egypt, it is threatening God's chosen people at this point. What's the significance of that? This quote I found very helpful, simple, helpful. The Passover shows that redemption involves two things. Number one, the release from slavery. We see how that's true, right? We're in bondage to sin and Christ releases us from the curse, right? He releases us from bondage. 
So they were released from Egyptian slavery, but there's number two is important. Also, the shedding of blood is the means of escape from God's judgment. So do you see these two vivid pictures are seen here in the, re in the redemptive story of Exodus. God needs to set his people free from bondage and death with a Satan-like, serpent-like Pharaoh over the people as an evil taskmaster. On the other side, it's not simply innocent people who need to be let free. It's guilty people who deserve God's judgment and wrath from the death angel who are being saved by the blood of the lamb. Now, do you see, God is showing us what redemption's like by these two aspects, and if we leave out either one, we're going to massively misunderstand the gospel. Yes, we need to be set free, but it's not because we're innocent victims. We are guilty, and we need the blood of an innocent, spotless lamb, no bones broken in the lamb, so that his blood could be applied to us and we could, be, we could escape through the blood of the lamb. He continues here, redemption is God's act of judgment upon his enemies, whereby he retrieves his lost people and makes them his in the place he prepares for them. It is thus a supernatural act of salvation worked by God for a people powerless to help themselves. Interwoven with these events is a sacrificial offering, the slaying of the Passover lamb, which delivers Israel from judgment so they can go free. And if you flip to Exodus 15, just a page over or so, you see 14 is the crossing of the Red Sea. 15 probably have similar titles at the top of your page. It's the song of who? Song of Moses. And just, I want to mention this in passing. We, we could probably spend a longer time on this, but I'll just mention it really quickly. Exodus 12 to 14 is the redemptive event, right? Set free from slavery, saved by the blood of the Lamb, and now led out through the waters of the Red Sea, which Paul will later say represents baptism. <laughs> it's an amazing, amazing picture here. So they are baptized in the Red Sea. We're told that. 1 Corinthians 10 says they were baptized with Mo in Moses in the Red Sea. So they just got set free, saved by the blood of the Lamb, and then baptized. That's what just happened, according to the New Testament. And they come out through the Red Sea, and God has just miraculously saved them and drowned the Egyptians, the army. And what do the people spontaneously do in response? They sing praise to God for His redemption. And does that not form the pattern for what we do every single Sunday? I mean, a lot of religions don't sing. I don't know if you thought about this. A lot of religions, when they gather, there's no singing. There's no lifting up your voice in praise. There's no tearful songs of God's graciousness and goodness. There's a lot of religions where that just looks like a strange thing. You might have chants, you might have things like that, but singing is, is not as common. Why is it in the Christian faith for 2,000 years, we gather together and what do we do? We hear about God's redemptive event in Christ, right? We've been saved by the blood of the Lamb. We've been set free from sin. We've been delivered out of bondage. We're heading toward a new creation. It's a new Exodus event. And then what do we do? We raise our voices in song. Because those who've been redeemed and saved by grace are going to respond with celebration, praise, and honor to the Lord. And that's why Christianity is so shaped by singing, by song. That's what we're about. So we see it here in, in seed form, and it's going to develop throughout the rest of Scripture. But the idea of singing to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord, that's in the New Testament, but it is rooted back in this redemptive event. Any, any thoughts here, Greg, on this? Well, thinking about the celebration, the rejoicing aspect of you know, our worship of God, it just takes me back. Um, when I was in college, uh, you know, speech communication was my major, and one of my professors was a, a very conservative Roman Catholic, and he talked about, you know, he, he talked with his friends and stuff like that who would occasionally attend Protestant churches, and this is a general statement, mm. but this was very telling to me. He said, the people in Protestant churches are always so happy. 
It's like, well, there's a reason why. Uh, we know what, what God has done. We know what we've been saved from. We know what we've been brought into. And it should produce joy. But that, that just, you know, you saying some they don't sing, other churches, they're, you know, not that there's not a seriousness to what we do, but there is a real joy. And like that has stuck with me. They're so happy in those churches. Like, amen, hallelujah. Like, that's great because why? They get what Jesus did. They get who Jesus is. And it means something. Yeah, let me just read the tail end of Exodus 14. Very end there, if you look at verse 30, this is just a great blueprint for what we do on Sunday. Exodus 14, verse 30. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So here's the response. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in His servant Moses, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord for He has triumphed gloriously, etc. So that, that's the shape. Here, the Egyptians are going to be replaced by Satan and demonic powers. He has conquered them by the blood of the Lamb, right? He has, he has ruled over them. And the, the, the singing is going to be with great passion and joy. It wasn't like Moses said, okay, guys, we've got to willpower a song right now. Like, we've got to choose to sing. No, there was, you couldn't hold them back from singing at what God had just done over the last couple of days in their life. They, they could not help but lift up a song in response to God's grace. And then if you look at the end of the song, it, all kinds of things could be mentioned here, but look at verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The people have heard, they tremble, pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia, Edom, Moab, Canaan are mentioned in the next verses. Verse 17, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. So is, are God's people going to be in God's place under God's rule and God's blessing? Yes, that's the redemption. We're going out of here, the wrong place, the wrong rule, and we're moving toward the true place under God's true rule, and, and that's what the people are praising God uh, for doing. I know you, we won't read all these verses. 1 Corinthians 5, you probably know verse 7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. But let me, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, this is the New Testament church, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. So that's an amazing statement from Paul. So saying the, the, the Exodus is clearly a blueprint for what we ourselves are going to, going to experience in Christ. Let me mention here, okay, so last Sunday we mentioned some of these distinctives. The Mosaic Covenant is distinct from, but in connection with the Abrahamic Covenant. It's temporary and ultimately leads us to Christ. But look at point number three again. I want to mention this in a little bit more detail. The Mosaic Covenant is rooted in God's gracious salvation but listen, its continued blessings are conditioned on Israel's obedience. And Greg, could you just, I, I know you already mentioned this last Sunday, but I want you just to repeat here with the map on the screen. Can you say a word here about the location of Israel in regard to the nations? Yes, um, I will be happy to. It helps to actually see this. I don't stand up much, but um, so yeah, remember we talked about um, you've got Egypt down here, major world power, and you've got the rest of the world up here. So you've got the Mediterranean Sea here and you've got desert here. So there's really this one little strip of land through which the northern part can connect to the southern part, okay? And that's exactly Israel. So if, if people from up here want to get down here, they have to go through Israel, which means 
They're going to see Israel's worship. They're going to see their distinctives. They're going to see their food laws. They're going to see their dress codes um, and the things they do and they don't do. And it's going to intrigue them because it's going to make Israel stick out uh, significantly from the people around them. And so remember, we talked about the foreigner coming in, uh, the, the resident alien. How do they know about this? Well, because this is the highway between north and south, if you will. And so Israel is going to be made known to the world in terms of all their uniqueness. Um, and so again, God providentially placed them in, in the most important spot in the ancient Near East where the whole world would have to see what's going on in this tiny, tiny little country. I mean, Israel's this tiny little strip right here, and you've got all this massive everything here. This tiny little strip affects everything. That's excellent. So let me just continue on that point for a moment, because I, I think if you get this point, you get a lot of the goal of the Mosaic Covenant in the Old Testament, okay? So repeating a verse from last Sunday, Exodus 19, they get to the foot of Mount Sinai, and God says, now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant. You shall be my treasure possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Remember we argue that a priest stands between God and a sinful people? The priest represents God to sinful people and represents the sinful people to God. And this nation was meant to be like a priest amongst the world, inviting the nations to come know Yahweh, the one true God. Well, just, I want to back this up with a couple of texts. I'll just, I'll add a little anecdote here. So, this is the summer Micah turned one. So it's 2017, summer. I, I spent a lot of time on, on this issue, trying to understand Israel and the Old Testament role and whatnot. That summer, I spent a lot of time on this topic. And I, I can remember reading just Old Testament text after Old Testament text, trying to see it more clearly in the Bible, not just what people say. I wanted to see it in the text of Scripture. And I will never forget some of these texts the first time I saw them in relationship to this topic, because I was like, that really is what the Bible's saying. Like, this is truly what Scripture is teaching. The one that blew me away uh, was 1 Kings 8. You could turn there if you want. This is when Solomon has become king. He has, remember, built that amazing temple for the Lord, and he's making this amazing dedication ceremony where he prays to the Lord. It's a long chapter. Oh, my goodness, but it's a tremendously important chapter in about 100 different ways for, for understanding the Old Testament. And let me just read a portion here, two, two portions. 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon's prayer. Let's start in verse 58. We're in the middle of a sentence. It's talking about the Lord inclining Israel's heart to him. So 1 Kings 8, verse 58, Solomon prays that he, the Lord, may incline our hearts to him to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his rules, which he commanded our fathers. Okay, real quick, is that the Mosaic law right there? So he's, he's very clearly saying, let's walk in the commandments of God. That's got to be the Mosaic law. So God, help us incline our hearts. Give us the desire to be faithful to you, to obey all your commandments and statutes and rules. Help us keep the law. Why? What's the goal? Verse 59, he continues praying, and may he, the Lord, maintain the cause of his servant, that's Israel, and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires. So Solomon and Israel, maintain our cause, uh, continue to help us, your people, as each day requires. So we obey you, the Lord, be faithful to us. What's the end goal? Verse 60, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord, that is Yahweh, the name of God, that the Lord, Yahweh, is God, what? There is no other. So this is, this is as close as you get to the center of the goal here. The goal is transformed people gladly submitting to Yahweh, obeying all of his commands by grace. And when they fail, there's a sacrificial system, but they're not to live in unrepentant sin, and the Lord is going to bless them. Remember? 
He's gonna bless you in the marketplace, bless you as you plant your crop, bless you in your home, bless you over your kneading board, bless you everywhere you go. And the Lord is gonna bless them spiritually, even physically. There's physical blessing incorporated in this. And as the Lord blesses Israel, what's gonna happen? Going back to the map here, Israel is gonna be like a shining light. Israel is gonna be like a shining light in this particular part of the world. And the nations from Egypt and all around, they will come in uh, to Israel and they will see, my goodness, this God is powerful. This God is majestic. This God is awesome. His people are different. We want to know this God. And that was the goal of Israel. Now, another text here, this should happen. Remember, it's a come and see in the Old Testament. Come and see what God's doing here in Israel. So look at verse 41 of 1 Kings 8. So same chapter, verse 41. What about the foreigner who's coming to see? Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, comes from a far country for your namesake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. Do you see here? The people are hearing God's getting glory. They're coming in. Like, there's like a magnetic pull towards Israel, Jerusalem. We got to meet this God in his temple in Jerusalem. So let me not, not get lost here. Where are we? Verse uh, 43. No, verse 42. For they shall hear of your great name and of your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When he, the foreigner, comes and prays toward this house, here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, why? In order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house, the temple that I have built, is called by your name, the name Yahweh. But do you see the goal here of Old Testament history? Let, let me show you another. Oh, by the way, this is why, just a footnote, this is why there was a court of the Gentiles in the temple because they're supposed to come to the house and pray. The, the foreigner comes to the house, the temple, and they pray. Well, they can't go into the actual temple, so what do they do? They designed the court of the Gentiles around the precincts of the temple so the Gentiles could come and find the true God. It was like an evangelistic strategy for the Gentiles to know God, and what does Jesus see when he gets to the court of the Gentiles? It's a marketplace. It's crowded with animals and oxen and all these different things to sell because they're trying to make money in the court of the Gentiles, and Jesus says, this is meant to be a house of prayer for the nations, but you've made it a den of thieves. Do you see the point? You're, you're destroying the very purpose for what, why we're here. We're meant to be attracting the nations to meet God, and you're trying to make a buck off of some animals here. You've completely missed the point of what the temple is here for. Now, Psalm 67 is another one that I think just so quickly says the whole thing in one short package here. Psalm 67, especially these first three verses. May the Lord be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. You get this, we're obeying the Lord, the Lord is blessing us, Israel. Verse two, why? That your way may be known on earth and your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. As you know, it goes on to say, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. So you see here again, one more time, not to just beat this point, but I would just show you one more time. The nations are meant to be attracted to that central hub and meet the Lord God himself. And that's the goal that the people need to meet. Tom Schreiner puts it like this. The covenant with Israel was gracious for the Lord freed his people from Egyptian slavery. That was gracious. In some ways, it was an extension of the covenant with Abraham and Adam. For Israel was called as God's son and as a kingdom of priests to display the righteousness of the Lord to the world as they kept the covenant stipulations. Blessings were promised for obedience and curses for disobedience. Israel was called as a theocracy to live under Yahweh's lordship. So Greg, any reflections on any of that? 
I mean, it, it definitely anticipates um, the New Testament gospel going forth to the nations. Um, one of the things we've talked about, and it's something I'm still working on in terms of exactly how to, to phrase it, but it's like the Old Testament um, in some senses, and we talked about this at the end of last week, and we talked about like the, you know, the church as the temple and stuff like that. The Old Testament and the Old Covenant lacked the mechanism, really, to, uh, for the nations to truly worship God because they would have to travel all these hundreds of miles and go all these places to visit this one location. And it's not until Christ comes that the, the anticipation, the desire of the Old Testament for the nations to come and worship God, it can actually be fulfilled because now instead of an architectural, physical building, um, everywhere believers gather is a temple where the world can go in and see the glory of God and be drawn to Him. Um, obviously, we go out into the world to preach the gospel, um, but you know the world then comes in and they 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 see the church, they see you know humanity rightly relating to one another, like um, you know people of different backgrounds, social statuses, you know incomes, everything like that. Like that that disappears when we walk in these doors. It's not that it's irrelevant, but but we don't relate to one another based on the ways that the the rest of the world relates to each other. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We are equally heirs of all that God has promised. And that changes the way we interact. It changes the way we speak to each other. It changes everything. Um, and, but the Old Testament lacked the mechanism for that. And now that the gospel has come, now that Christ has come, the way the nations are going to come in is clear. It's through faith in the Messiah. And then you gather together with like-minded people who have the same faith and you worship together. It's an, it's an amazing, amazing thing. And so you know, we're always asking this question, how is this going to happen? How is this going to happen? Well, we need, we need something greater than what we see in the Old Covenant for it to actually take place. Yes, and that's why missions is not an afterthought or an add-on in the New Testament. You know, like God didn't care about the nations. He just cared about Israel in the Old Testament. And then, okay, in the New Testament, Jesus just sort of adds this thing out of, out of whole cloth, just out mm -hmm. of nowhere, the nations. Is that accurate? No. Genesis 12, I will bless all peoples of the earth through Abraham's family. That's, that's the 12th chapter of the Bible. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed in your offspring. And then it traces out to Israel, and God invites the nations to come and see, like the Queen of Sheba, come and see. But then once Christ comes, the floodgates open, and now it's go and tell, have little temples all over the world, a gathering in the name of Christ where people can come mm -hmm. to know Him. Yeah. Okay, so we've got to move a little quicker here for the second half. Um, here's just sort of an overview, borrowing some help from Peter Gentry for the second half of Exodus. Here's kind of a basic framework for what we're looking at here for this covenant to be ratified with Israel. So just real quick, Exodus 19, we arrive at the foot of Mount Sinai. 20 is the Ten Commandments. Peter Gentry was great on this. He said, you know, the Ten Commandments are never once called the Ten Commandments in the whole Bible. Not one time, not a single time. They're called the Ten Words in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible. In the New Testament, they're referred to as the Commandments, but never once are they actually called the Ten Commandments. They're called the Ten Words. And I think the, he makes an important point here, actually, with this. Greg, a word about how the Ten Words could connect us back in some way to Genesis 1. Yeah, there, there's a lot more that needs to be said on this, so we're not going to stake everything on this. But there's some merit to it, uh, at the very least. Um, when you look at Genesis the way it's structured, God speaks ten times in the creation. Um, and it's upon those ten words that God speaks in creation, you know, and the Lord, you know, the Lord spoke in this and all that. Like, um, so God spoke 10 times creation. God speaks 10 times to Israel. And in the same way that the creation and humanity is meant to live by, hang on everything that God says, how much more the people of God here 
in the nation of Israel to hang on every word that God says. And so as you know, in Genesis, God sets everything up. Everything's based on those 10 words. So here in uh, Exodus 20 with the 10 words, the 10 commandments, as we're familiar, like the, the entire obedience of Israel to Yahweh is based on these 10 words. Um, and what's interesting is when you, uh, when you look at these 10 words, these 10 commandments, if you will, they're, they're not given a specific context. Oh, in this situation, obey it. These are commandments that are left wide open. No matter where you are, no matter what time of day, not just this week, but next week, not just this month, but next month, not just this year, but next year, and so on and so forth, you know, um, as long as you live, these commandments are binding on us, on, on the nation of Israel, I should say. Um, and so there's something very unique about that. Um, and, the, you know, and again, there, there's, there's connections that, that I'm not ready to make yet just because I hadn't studied it enough. Um, but I think there is something there that, that's worth considering further. Yeah, that's good. So just, just to get the structure in mind, Exodus 20 gives you the 10 words, the 10 commandments. Then chapters 21, 22, 23 flesh out in sort of what they call case laws or judgments about the 10 words. Here's what that means. God gives you samplings of what might look like a court verdict. Like, okay, if mm -hmm. I, I'll give you one example here I have saved. Um, so Exodus 21 says, these are the rules of the judgments that you shall set before them. Here's just kind of one. There's a bunch of them. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner also shall be put to death. So you see here, it's going it's to run through a whole bunch of kind of, they seem to us somewhat random scenarios of like things that could happen, how people could be injured or hurt, or how theft could work with, or all these things. And it tells you God's verdict on specific instances. The goal is then to take these specific um, judgments and then to extrapolate from them in Israel's uh, theocratic system how to apply God's 10 words to all of life. That's the idea. So the 10 words are the overruling, uh, no questions asked rules. And then these next three chapters flesh them out with sort of court verdicts on how to actually apply these to everyday life. And let me just go real quick here to Exodus 24. This is important, verse 7. Look at Exodus 24, verse 7. And this is where the covenant is inaugurated. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. Now, I don't think it's an accident that when Jesus is at the Last Supper, he picks up the cup and says, this is the covenant in my blood. Does that sound pretty similar there? The blood of the covenant? He calls it the blood of the new covenant, right? The cup of the blood of the new covenant. So you see here, the old covenant was in, instituted by blood, and now the new covenant will be instituted by the blood of Christ, right? The, the, the blood of the covenant. And I think there's an echo back to these words. But this is the moment when the Mosaic Code officially takes effect for the nation of Israel. And do they agree to all the rules? They fully agree. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Just uh, to skip ahead here for a moment. Well, you know the story. Not long afterwards, Moses goes up, he finishes speaking, he takes the two tablets of the testimony written with the finger of God. Chapter 31, 32, verse 1, the people saw Moses was delayed to come down from the mountain. They gathered themselves together to Aaron, said, up, make us gods who shall go before us. And so what happens? They bake the golden calf. <laughs> so all the things the Lord has spoken, we will do. 
and then we're going to make a golden calf a couple of weeks later. That's, that's kind of what you see here. And God is ready to pour out his anger on them. Look at this. This is Exodus 32, verse 10. Now, therefore, the Lord says, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you, Moses. Now, look, Moses is here showing us a picture of a mediator standing between God and men. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Verse 13, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring that they will inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Let me just pause here for a moment. Now, some people may even ask a question, like the Lord was going to do something, and then Moses prayed that he not do that thing, and then the Lord relented and did not do the thing that he said he was going to otherwise do. What do we make of that? And I don't, I have no problem whatsoever with this kind of way of speaking. Here, here's the thing. Okay, let's talk from the sovereignty of God perspective. Did God sovereignly ordain that Moses would pray that the Lord turn away his anger? Yes, otherwise Moses would not have done that. God prompted his heart to, to pray that way as a mediator, as an intercessor. And then the Lord in his sovereignty chose to respond to that prayer that God would have ordained and answer it favorably to turn away his wrath. Okay, so how does that apply to us? There's a couple of points here. Number one, if you can't see a Jesus-type figure here, it's, it's hard not to see that Moses is playing a figure of a mediator quite powerfully. But let's talk about ourselves for just a second here. We can pray to the same God, and we can pray for people who are currently under the judgment of God. Whoever does not obey the Son, the wrath of God remains on him, John 3. And we can pray, we can intercede before the Lord and say, Lord, for your glory and for the good of this person, for the good of your people, please rescue this individual from your just wrath. Please save them by your mercy, for your glory, for your namesake. And who knows, but how many times the Lord has answered the prayers of Christians saying, I will relent. I'm going to rescue that person. I'm going to save that person. That doesn't do away with the sovereignty of God. It establishes the sovereignty of God. But that doesn't mean our prayer doesn't matter. Moses's prayer made a real difference in this moment. And it doesn't undo the sovereignty of God. It does not. But it was a real and effectual prayer that the Lord brought about and that the Lord answered. Greg, any thoughts on this notion here? Because I think sometimes people can take this as confusing. It goes back to what we talked about a while ago. You yeah. know, God's sovereignty, His decrees, like that is a that is a, a sphere or realm, whatever word you want to use, that, that is outside our, our ability to really operate in or, or really grasp. Um, it, it's so much higher than us. Um, what, what we are to be concerned with is what's clearly revealed. You've, you know, we talked about God's will of decree, God's will of command. Um, you know, and so we, we are to operate trusting that God's going to accomplish all that he's planned. Um, but we are still responsible, like you said, to, to make the right decisions, to, to be bold. I mean, it's a bold thing for Moses to pray. God's ready to pour out his wrath and destroy the nation. Um, but how does Moses do that? I think that's the, one of the most important things here. How does he do this? He reminds God, not that God forgot, but in terms of his prayer, Lord, you, you promised certain things. You swore certain things that you were going to do. Um, and it, it's in a sense, it's, it's, it's like Abraham, you know, trusting, you know, look, God said Isaac's going to be the one. Mm -hmm. um, and that, it's like Moses, like, God, you said we're your people. You promised certain things. You promised this land. Um, you said you're going to multiply us. 
Um, you know, Lord, he's basically said, God, keep your promise. Remember your promise. And, and so from our perspective, you know, this, this is where the sovereignty of God, if we understand it wrongly, uh, will lead to really bad, yep. like laziness and lack of engagement in our lives. Well, God, God decreed it. It's going to happen. He doesn't need me. You know, why even bother? And like that, that's what we would relegate to hyper Calvinism, um, you know, basically removes our responsibility. And instead um, it's, it's, we're like, no, God, God decreed it, but he decreed it through what we're going to do. And so mm -hmm. it's like, you know, if Israel is going to be saved, they need a mediator. So from as Moses, as far as he's concerned, the only one who's going to make change here is me. If I don't stand up and say anything, these people are about to be wiped out. So I got to pray. I've got to go to God. I've got to say, Lord, please relent, spare these people um, and that kind of stuff. And it's the same way. It's like if God ordained for these lights to come on today, they're going to be on. But how? Somebody went and flipped the switch. They're not going to come on if you don't flip the switch. Israel's not going to be saved if Moses doesn't stand up and uh, do what, what he knows he needs to do. And it's like we operate not in, well, God decreed it, therefore what I do doesn't matter. It's like, no, we know God's going to accomplish his plan, but we know what we're responsible for. And if we don't do what we're supposed to, we might not see what we want to see. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the only way I know to look at it. And so it's, it's like, if we know God's for us, he's working all things together for good, go for obedience, man, go all out because you know, God's on your side. That's well said. And let's, let's get this important part. If you're in your scripture, you can turn to Exodus 34. And this is the big moment. The end of 33, Moses says, Lord, show me your glory. God says, I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock. I'll hide your face. You can't see my face and live. And here is where, again, Exodus is revealing the character of this God who's in covenant with his people. And this is one of the most important revelations of God's character in the whole Bible. And it's repeated, I don't know how many times, a dozen or more times in the Old Testament. Exodus 34, verse 6. This is just so central to understanding the God of the Bible. I'm going to use the word Yahweh because that's the word he's using here. Yahweh passed before Moses and proclaimed, so he's going to proclaim his, his name, Yahweh, Yahweh. So who is this God? The Lord, Yahweh. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Let me just start with the negative side. Visiting the iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generation is referring to, I believe, the passing down of sinful habits through the father to the children, which typically goes to the third and fourth generation. I think that's what's, I think that's what's being referred to there. Not that the children are being punished for the father's sin, but that the sin is actually passed down three or four generations. But let's look at the positive side here. I mean, this, this really blew me away maybe, I would say maybe a year ago, maybe less than a year ago. Um, this Dana, Dana Ortland was talking about the gentle and lowly theme, and he went to this text, and I'll tell you, this really was astonishing to me. God is going to tell you what he's like. I mean, imagine what he could say in this paragraph. Just think about all of God's attributes, his power, his knowledge, his wisdom, all that God knows and does and is of all the things God could tell you about himself. He's got to boil it down to our level and give us a brief description. Who in the world would think that the opening word, I mean, just look, look at the third description, slow to anger. That absolutely is amazing to me. So when God is going to boil down, here's who Yahweh is. Let me describe who I am. Merciful, gracious, slow to anger. That is a remarkable description for God. Of all the things he could tell you about himself, 
I'm, I'm the God who is slow to get angry at sinners. That's who I am. That's just a remarkable. So God is demonstrating, is he showing that to Israel right now? He has every reason to obliterate the nation of Israel. And instead, he is going to be gracious and merciful. He is going to be slow to anger. He's going to show steadfast love to thousands. And uh, I don't know, thoughts, I think this is so central to understanding the God of the Bible. Well, this also gets to, uh, you know, I'm going to drop some Tozer on us here, A.W. Tozer. He made the statement, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Um, And so just, you know, evaluate right now. When you hear God, you hear the Lord, what comes into your mind? Um, is it what Moses says here, or is it something else? And, you know, this, Moses wanted to see God's glory. He wanted to behold God. And this is what God says. It's interesting. He says that he proclaimed the name of the Lord. So it's God saying, when you think of me, this is what you have to think about. And what is the first, the, the first three, four things? He is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I mean, is that the picture that comes into your mind when you think about God? That's what God wants you to think about. If you're his children, that's what he wants you to think about. Gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And the reason I say that is we, you know, we, we have so many different thoughts that invade our minds throughout the day. And, and we, you know, as sinners, we are reflexively bent towards not not thinking the right thoughts about God. And even as Christians, we have to be on guard against how we can have a distorted view of who God is. Do you view God as just out to get you, waiting to drop the hammer at any little mess up that you have? You know, it's like, man, I'm, I'm gonna bless you, but if you mess up one time, I'm gonna get you. You know, that's not what God wants us to think about him when we think about God. He says, what, what, I mean, he's telling us the exact opposite. And the reason why that matters is that's like what the gods of the nations are. There's gods that are fickle and you hope you've done enough. And man, if I mess up, he's going to get me, zap me. I'm done. I, I, can't, I can't mess up at all. And, and God says, I'm a God, merciful, which means he's, he takes pity on us. He's ready to help us. Gracious means he's going to deal with us contrary to what we deserve, not by what we deserve. Um, slow to anger, as Mark said, abounding, overflowing. It's just gushing out steadfast love and faithfulness. Like that's what we, like, I honestly think we have to preach that this is who God is, um, what, what he says to Moses here, because if we don't daily remind ourselves of this, we're going to slip into a mindset and, and we're going to potentially view God with a distorted lens and we're going to think about him. And then everything we do, even when we pray, whenever we're, con- we're, we're going to have the wrong view of how God's looking at that. And it's going to lead to a life of fear, a life of, of, of slavery to doubt. And, you know, I'll just never live up to God. Like, let what scripture says about God flood our minds. And, and, you know, the way we do that is every day. If you need to memorize this, read this every morning, verse six, like just read it every morning and like say it several times just to make your mind get saturated with it because this is how God wants us to think about him. This is the first thing he wants us to have in our minds that he is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Yeah, and I don't know if I have time to add this, a parallel text make, makes me think that the, the, when it says steadfast love for thousands, I think that probably means for a thousand generations. Here, here's why I say that. The parallel text in Deuteronomy 7, 9, I think makes that clear. Just real quick. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him. Does it sound familiar? 
uh, and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him. So I think it's a very, I think the thousand there is referring to a thousand generations. And if that's true, then do you see God's disproportionate bent towards mercy? He, he visits the iniquity on the ungodly to three or four generations. He gives his steadfast love to a thousand generations. That's how disproportionately God leans toward mercy. God, you know, I think the Puritans would call God's wrath his left-handed deeds. Now, I'm left-handed, so I can say that, okay? Uh, God, God's left-handed deeds. In other words, God does not, God, uh, put it this way. In the Bible, God is said to be provoked to wrath over and over again, right? You have to look that up. Provoked to wrath. Not once is God ever said to be provoked to mercy. And yet in the New Testament, we are called to provoke ourselves to love and good deeds. We're the opposite of God. You see that? For God to bring wrath, he has to be provoked. He doesn't find just kicks and delights in that. He doesn't, that's not what gets him going. He doesn't like that. He, he likes, he delights in mercy and steadfast love. That's what God loves to do. But God will bring justice if he must, but he must be provoked to judgment. But we are the exact opposite. We have to be provoked to love and good deeds, right? Because our, our natural bent is towards sinful wrath and judgment. So God is not like us in a glorious way. He is provoked to wrath, but he delights in steadfast love to a thousand generations. Let me make one quick comment. Yeah. When we talk about those who hate him, those who are guilty, we might be tempted to think, well, I sinned, I'm guilty. That means, no, no, the, these are, are characteristics of a whole life. Like, you know, think unrepentant person, someone who when they sin, they don't care. They don't want to change their ways. They don't want to, you know, make rest, you know, they don't want to be right with God. They don't want to, to walk in a new way. These guilty, these people who hate God, um, it's, 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 it's a person who is committed to their sin and has rejected God, okay? Like, we, we have to keep that in mind because if, if we use the wrong understanding of guilty, um, you know, because we, we could, you know, technically say every time we sin, we're hating God, well, you know, then, then we're going we're gonna to really tie ourselves in knots with this. This is a settled disposition and way of life, mm -hmm. okay? This isn't talking about someone who's broken over their sin, someone who is trying to, to daily walk with God and, you know, confess sin when they do, but also forsake it, mortify it, repent from it. Like, it's not talking about that. It's, it's a settled disposition and a trajectory of life that is opposed to God, okay? Because we're all guilty when we sin of, of our sin. We all, in that moment, like we're not doing that sin out of love for God. It's, it's, it's a hatred of God and a love for the sin. But it's not characteristic of the totality of our lives. So we have to keep that in mind. Otherwise, you're going to be tied up in knots and you're never, ever going to be able to enjoy the love of God and the grace of God because every single little thing you do that's not right, you're going to be like, well, I'm guilty. I must hate God. And you start to question, can I even be saved? And it's just, it's a terrible process to even go down. No, that's a good point. So let's, let's finish Exodus. Let's jump to the last chapter, uh, Exodus chapter 40. Uh, if you saw our outline, chapters 25 to 40, that's a big chunk of Bible, is basically about building the tabernacle, right? 25 to 40 is, with the one interruption of the golden calf in the middle, 25 to 40 is nothing but tabernacle instructions and then the making of the tabernacle. So Exodus 40, uh, this is how the whole book ends. Verse, where should it, okay, verse one. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, on the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. You shall put in it the ark of the testimony. You shall screen the ark with the veil. You shall bring in the table and arrange it. And you shall bring in the lampstand and set it up, uh, set up lamps, its lamps. You shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. Skip to verse 16. This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him. So he did in the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erect, erected, verse 33. So Moses finished the work, verse 34. 
Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Greg reminded me of a great cross-reference here. It's on the screen, Psalm 68, verse 17. Listen to this verse. The chariots of God are twice 10,000, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Now look at that. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. Do you see what's just happened in Exodus? When they get to Mount Sinai, the glory of God's up on the mountain, and now the glory of God is in their midst, dwelling among them. It's not much different from John 1.14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among them. So you've got this blazing fire on the mountain, and only Moses can draw near. Not even the other priests can get that close. And then God's glory comes off the mountain, and now Sinai is in the sanctuary. The glory of Sinai is now living in that tabernacle right there in the midst of the people of God. And when God's glory fills this tabernacle, the glory is so bright, the cloud is, is coming out with such intensity, not even Moses can walk in. And that's how the book of Exodus ends, and it's just begging for the first, can I just, first verse of Leviticus. It happens at the same moment. Look with me. First verse of Leviticus, very next part here. There's no time gap between Exodus and Leviticus, just the very next sentence. Leviticus 1.1, the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying... You see, Moses is outside. He can't get in. The Lord speaks to him. And then what, what, what's going to happen? The Lord is going to open the way into his presence. And the way in is through the blood of animals, right? That's, that's how the next nine chapters of Leviticus are going to lay out the blood sacrifice to get us back into God's presence and to preserve us in the midst of his holiness. So I hope you see here God's character is on display through the Mosaic covenant. The people continue to fail, but God continues to show his grace in a pretty amazing way. So Greg, can you pray for us? Yeah. Let's pray. Father, uh, wow, thank you for all that we've been able to look at in your word. Um, and Lord, I, I pray that, um, Lord, we'll just take this to heart and, uh, Lord, see that you are a God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, and so much more. Uh, Lord, reorient the, the posture of our hearts towards you. Reorient the way we think about you. Uh, Lord, that we would see you as you say you are. Um, Lord, help us overthrow in our own hearts and minds, Lord, any distorted ways of expecting you to work and of thinking about you. Um, and Lord, just shape us according to what Scripture says. And Lord, help us see that uh, obedience to you is a good thing. Um, Lord, there's lots of laws and ordinances and, and all of this, and it's not a bad thing to obey God. It's a good thing. Uh, Lord, we show who we belong to in so many ways by what we do and what we don't do. And so, Lord, may our lives reflect your glory as we walk in the ways you've set before us. But, Lord, we know that ultimately our hope is not in how well we walk, but it's in the perfect walk of Jesus for us. And so help us fix our eyes on him, even as we stumble forward uh, day by day, trying to do a little bit better to walk with you. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.